The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 20. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted for me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted for you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai-Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai-Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and then Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. They defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him oxen, my daughter for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you have given us all of your word for our instruction, for our good, for our encouragement to lead us to you through your son. And I pray that is what you would do this morning, that by your spirit, you would open up your word to us and let us see your beauty there. And in seeing your beauty, may our faith become 
firmer. Make us a people of firm faith who stand on a firm foundation no matter the darkness that surrounds us. We pray that you would work that wonder in our hearts right now through your word. We pray it in the name of your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right. So that was fun. Judges 1, right? Starting this new series into the book of Judges, and I have entitled this series, When All Other Lights Go Out. When All Other Lights Go Out. I chose that title for two reasons. I chose it, one, because Judges is the darkest book in the Bible. Like, I told you this sucker is TVMA. Like, the cross is the darkest moment in human history. The murder of the sinless son of God, you don't get darker than that. But on the whole scale, as a book, Judges is the darkest book in Scripture. But that doesn't mean it is without light. In fact, I would argue that it is precisely the darkness of Judges that serves to reveal the bright light of the gospel. Because we will behold the unconquerable brightness of the gospel precisely when all other lights are conquered, when all other lights go out, and this is the only one that remains. That is when we will see that it is truly a light that the darkness cannot overcome. I chose that title, When All Other Lights Go Out, because of the darkness of judges and how it reveals the bright light of the gospel. But I chose it for a second reason, and it's because if you don't know, I'm just a little bit of a Lord of the Rings fan. Rings of Power is playing right now, so it's kind of on the forefront of the brain. I might or might not be leading a reading group to the Silmarillion right now. That's a whole other discussion, whatever. Anyway, it's okay if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan. My own mother, I know, tragedy. My own mother is not a fan of Lord of the Rings. It's just too dark, Jonathan. That's what she says. The story's just too, too dark for me. But that's one of the reasons I love it. Because in its darkness, Lord of the Rings is a reflection of reality. Like we live in a world that can be dark, do we not? I mean, do you scroll through the headlines or social media? We live in a world that can be dark. And, and Lord of the Rings was not written as a happy little fairy tale to help us escape that reality. No, it was written to help us stare into that darkness and know how to still see hope. That's why I love Lord of the Rings. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. Because it does not skirt the hard or the dark. It forces us to stare it down. And right there in the heart of darkness is where it shines brightest, the light of the hope that we have in the gospel. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It's one of the reasons I love Lord of the Rings, which is also why in the first book of Lord of the Rings, I promise I'm going to quit talking about Lord of the Rings eventually, all right? But it's why in, in, in the first, one of my favorite scenes in the first book of Lord of the Rings comes amidst the darkness of death. So all the main characters have basically set out on this really big journey, but they're already feeling defeated because their leader, Gandalf, spoiler alert, has died. If you don't know, the books were written forever ago, people. Like, this is an old spoiler alert, Okay but their leader of their fellowship has just died and they're already feeling defeated. And that's when they have a meeting with this powerful elf maiden, Galadriel, the lady of light. Into their darkness walks the lady of light and she gives them gifts to help them face the dark quest that lies 
ahead. And the gift she gives the main character, Frodo, is this little glass vial with some liquid in it. And she says, I give to you the light of Arindil, our most beloved star. How's there starlight in a glass vial? It's magic, people. Okay, just deal with it. Give to you the light of Arindil, our most beloved star. And then she says this, may it be a light for you when all other lights go out. Shades, judges is like Galadriel's gift. It shows us the light we have when all other lights go out. The only way it can do that is by taking us into the place where all other lights go out. It shows us the light we have when all other lights go out. My question for us this morning is simply how? How does Judges do that? I believe Judges 1 gives us a twofold answer to that question. How does Judges show us the light we have when all other lights go out? It does it by being a warning and a witness. We're going to see this again and again throughout the entire book of Judges. I would tell you this is the purpose of the book of Judges. It's why it was written, to serve as both a warning and a witness simultaneously. So let's dive into the text to unpack that. And first, let's see Judges is a warning. This is where we're going to spend 90% of our time, so don't freak out when it's been a while and we finally get to number two. We'll run through that one, okay? But here we go. First, we need to see Judges is a warning. Look at Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So right here, we're getting the introduction to the book of Judges. Judges actually will have two introductions, we will see. And the interesting thing is, the book of Judges, it has two introductions, but it also has two conclusions. And those introductions and conclusions parallel one another. Hang on to that. We're going we're to come back to that. But right here, we're simply getting introduction number one. And it begins with the death of Joshua. Now, right here, we have to pause. Okay, we're going to do a couple, probably three pauses this morning. This is an introduction. We're going to be a little bit all over the place. We've got lots of stuff to cover I'd encourage you to take notes if you want it all to make sense, but buckle up, hang on tight, here we go. We've got to stop and kind of explain some backstory so the rest of everything will make sense to us as we go throughout this book. So right here, we've got to take a pause because this book begins with the death of Joshua. And if you don't know who Joshua is, here is the shortest version of the backstory I can give you. And if you do know who he is, you need this anyway. I'm including key refreshing points that we're going to need later in this chapter. So here we go. God chose a people for himself. And he promised to make them a nation and to give them a land, the land of Canaan. But these people, the Israelites, they end up being slaves in Egypt for roughly 400 years. But no worry, God rescues them out, leads them through the wilderness, brings them to the land that he had promised them, and things go terribly. Because they get to that land, and only two men, Joshua and Caleb, actually trust that God will do what he promised to do, give them the land. Everybody else looks at the inhabitants of that land, the Canaanites, which is just a broad word for a bunch of different tribal peoples living inside this land. But they look at the people in this land, they see their fortified cities, superior technology, weapons of war. And they even see that some of these people are freaking huge. The Anakim, the sons of the Anak, who are said to be giants. 
People see this and they freak out. They turn around. As a result, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire unbelieving generation dies off. Everybody except faithful Joshua and Caleb. And then God brings back to the land promised to them this entirely new generation. And under the leadership of Joshua, they do what they should have done in the first place. They invade the land. They fight. They break the back of the Canaanite stronghold on the land. So by the time Joshua dies, all that's left for the Israelites to do is finish the cleanup work. Finish driving out the Canaanites, the the back of resistance has been broken. Simply finish driving them out and settle the land and have rest like God promised. This is where our story picks up in Judges chapter one. And verse one that we read just a second ago, we can unpause now, we're back to Judges one. Verse one that we read just a second ago makes it seem like things are going well. I told you that I was going to show you how Judges is a warning, but it doesn't seem like a warning at all right here. Like, even though Joshua is dead, in verse 1, we see the people aren't leaderless. They come to God as their leader. They treat God as their king. They ask him what to do. And he tells them, finish conquering the Canaanites like I told you to do. Now, here's where we get to take pause number two. It's going to take us a while to get going, people. All right? But we've got to take pause number two to do a little aside right here. Because here's the deal. As we go through the book of Judges, we are going to encounter many different things that cause lots of questions, especially questions for modern readers. We're far removed from this time period, this context. So we're going to encounter things that cause a lot of questions. And right here in this chapter, we are encountering the first one and probably the biggest one. And that's the question of the Canaanite conquest. God tells them, clear out the Like, how could God do this? How, how could God pick a people, Israel, and tell them to invade, kill, conquer, steal the land of these innocent Canaanites? If any other nation did this today, they would be soundly condemned on all sides, and rightly so. So why is it okay for Israel in the Old Testament? That is a hard question. And I'm sorry to disappoint, but I'm not going to have time to give you a full satisfactory answer this morning. We could do a whole sermon series on just that question. But what I do want to do is I want to give you four truths. Four truths to help get a theological framework for understanding the conquest. So here we go. We're going to run through these. Truth number one, God showed the Canaanites grace before judgment. God showed the Canaanites grace before judgment. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you will hear God make the promise of this specific land to Abraham. But he specifically tells Abraham, I can't give it to you yet. And why? To quote him, God says, because the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites, that's one of the primary people groups living in the land of Canaan, the iniquity, the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete. In other words, I'm going to give them more time. Do you know how much time he gives from Abraham to the conquest? 700 years. 
700 years for them to repent. And the Canaanites would not change. 700 years, he just showers nothing but sheer grace. And the Canaanites will not repent. So judgment does come upon their sin. And that's essential for us to see. I said earlier, we commonly phrase this question about the conquest. How could the Israelites do this to these innocent Canaanites as if they're like all walking around twiddling their thumbs and just having a good old day whistling, you know, hallelujah or something. The Canaanites were not an innocent people. Go read Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 contains lists of Canaanite practices that include things like child sacrifice, They were not innocent, and God's judgment was just, and it would come. But even then, truth number two, even when his judgment did come, listen to this, God showed the Canaanites grace when they repented. He showed them grace if they repented. Go read Joshua chapter 2 through chapter 6. And focus on the story of Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. She's idolatrous. She's immoral. She checks all the Canaanite boxes down the list. But yet Rahab embraces Yahweh as Lord. And she, not just she, but her whole family, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandpas, twice removed. I don't even know what that means. Does anybody know what that means? We can talk about it later. Like God spares them all from the Canaanite conquest. He lavishes grace. He is ready to pour out his grace on all who repent, Canaanite or otherwise. His judgment was not coming on these people because they were Canaanites. That's truth number three that we need to see. God's judgment of the Canaanites was for idolatry, not ethnicity. It was for idolatry, not ethnicity. Again, Go read Leviticus. I know your favorite Sunday afternoon reading, but go read Leviticus chapter 18. It is clear. God makes it clear. The Canaanites are being expelled, not for their ethnicity, but for their idolatry. In fact, the way Leviticus 18 ends is with a warning to the Israelites, where God says, after these people have been expelled and you get settled in this land, if you do the same things they do, if you commit the same idolatry, You're going to get judgment too. And that's exactly what happens. They go after other gods and God evicts them from the land in exile because this is not about ethnicity. It's about idolatry. And finally, we need to see truth number four. God's judgment of the Canaanites was unique in salvation history. There is no nation on the planet, no kingdom who can ever use the Old Testament right here as a justification for conquering anybody. I don't care if that nation or country considers itself Christian or not, which is an oxymoron in the New Testament era. God has one kingdom, and Jesus said, it is not of this world. In fact, he goes on to say, if it were of this world, then my followers would fight physical wars. And that's what happens. Every time a physical kingdom in this world thinks they are the kingdom of God, they try to advance through literal physical warfare. And Jesus himself said, that's not the way this works. Name your country. None of them are the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is made up of people from every tribe, nation, 
tongue, and language. What he did in the Old Testament with Israel was unique. It was unique for, for a specific time period, for a specific purpose, God chose for his people to not just have a religious identity, but to have a national political one. And the New Testament tells us why God did that, why he did all that he did with Israel. It was all to foreshadow, to give us categories of understanding, to foreshadow the fullness of his plan for his worldwide people. That includes the conquest. The purpose of the conquest is to foreshadow what God will do in fullness for his worldwide people, the church. What what, what does the conquest foreshadow? It foreshadows that in the end, God will judge all evil and remove it, not just from one land, but from all lands. And then his people, his church will inherit the earth. His church that's made up of people from, who don't have a national identity because they're made up of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So we don't conduct physical wars with the kingdoms of this world because we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. So we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this pregnant darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The application of judges cannot be made to any one physical nation. It is made to God's people. You can't compare any nation with Old Testament Israel. You can only compare his people, the church. You are the one true Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, grafted into Christ. The application is to us. All right, Shades, now unpause. I know that these four truths do not answer everything. We can sit down over coffee and talk about it more. But I hope they give a theological framework for understanding and wrestling with what we read about the conquest. To sum up, God showed the Canaanites grace before judgment. He showed them grace when they repented. The judgment was for idolatry, not ethnicity, and it was unique in salvation history. Okay, unpause, back to Judges chapter one. Everybody still with me? Are we still together? Let's keep rolling. Judges one, which I've told you, reveals that Judges is a warning, but it doesn't look that way at all so far. It actually looks like things are going pretty well. I mean, didn't we read in verse one that the people are treating God as their king? Asking him, how should we continue the conquest? And God answers, you continue it with Judah. Let Judah go up and start his conquest in the southern part of the land first. And what we get in the following verses of verses three all the way to verse 20 is Judah doing just that. Judah goes up, conquering the land that God had promised to them. And if we're honest, overall, things seem to go pretty well. We actually get several little vignettes and all of them are designed to show us that things go pretty well for Judah. Just look at the next vignette, verse three. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, this is one tribe to another. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted for me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. I mean, right here, check out the unity that we're getting between these tribes. Simeon's a really small tribe. Judah's huge. Simeon's land inheritance actually is inside of Judah's. Like if this is like if Judah was inheriting Jefferson County, then Simeon is getting Homewood. So it makes sense, right? Tribes unite by your powers combined. Okay. It makes sense. Like they are going to work together to fight this 
Fine. And this probably leads you to think, Jonathan, like I thought you have said repeatedly that Judges is a warning, but this again looks like things are going well. And you're right. It does look that way. Some scholars argue that. They argue that this unity between the tribes right here is a picture of things going well. However, other scholars think that what's happening right here, this little pact between Judah and Simeon, they think it's a bad thing. They think it evidences Judah's lack of faith in God fighting for them. Maybe God's power isn't enough. We need Simeon to come along and help out. And so some scholars say this is actually warning against not trusting in God. So which is it? This little vignette, is it a warning? Or is it things going well? Right here, we run into another common problem that we are going to encounter in the book of Judges. So we need to pause again. Last one, I promise. I promise. Last one. But we need to pause for one more little aside. As as we read throughout Judges, we're going to encounter narratives about which we're going to find ourselves asking, okay, why is the author telling us this? Like, are they simply recounting what happened? Are they commending it? Like, this is a good thing. Cut off those thumbs and big toes, people. Or are they condemning it? This is a bad thing. Which, which, we see that right here with this little passage about unity. Is it a good thing? Tribes working together? Is it a bad thing? They're not trusting the Lord? Like, how can we tell what the author wants us to think about this? It's not like this is like a movie. Like, when we watch a movie today, like, we know what the filmmaker wants us to feel about what's going on on screen. And we all know it automatically because of, like, the mood of the music or the lighting or maybe the wardrobe or some dialogue cues. And judges, this is not like that, or is it? You see, we know what filmmakers want us to feel because we understand the way they tell stories. Likewise, Judges does indicate what we are to feel, but it does it by the way it tells the story. And it's harder for us to discern because it's just a different way of storytelling. So instead of mood, music, lighting, and dialogue, our author and Judges is going to use structure. He's going to use comparison and witty contrast in order to communicate to us what's going on. That is what is happening right here in Judges chapter 1. Recall that I told you Judges has two introductions that parallel two conclusions. Told you it was coming back. Here it is. The reason it's got those is it's, we're meant to see that so that we'll lay those beside one another and compare and contrast them. I think we can discern what we're meant to feel about chapter one when we set this introduction alongside of the things that happen in the conclusion. Because when we do that, the contrast between the two could not be more stark. Let me just walk you through the vignettes in chapter one and show you that contrast. So right here, in the one we're in, verse three, we see two tribes working together to war against their enemies. In the conclusion, we will see the opposite. We will see the tribes of Israel warring with one another as enemies. So we can begin to see 
it seems like the author wants us to see what's happening in chapter one as, as a good thing. Things are going well here in the beginning. Right? Maybe that's what he's saying if we see that again in the next vignette. We get a similar contrast in verses four through seven if you look at that. Here, we get our fun first little judges-type story. We get Judah's victory over Bezek and its ruler, Adonai Bezek, which literally just means ruler of Bezek. And yeah, things get weird. Cut off his thumbs and his, his big toes, but that was to render this warmonger of a tyrant incapable of mongering anymore. Like, the purpose of this is he can no longer hold a sword. He can no longer run in battle. He cannot do the conquering that he himself admits he used to do. He claims to have conquered and incapacitated 70 kings in this exact way. Probably an exaggerated number, but that's another thing for another day. And he recognizes that God has brought his conquering days to an end. Now, here's the deal, Shades. I don't know if the author of Judges is endorsing every detail of this story as a good thing. But again, I think the main thing he wants us to see lies in the contrast of this introduction with the conclusion. Here, we see Israel cut up their enemy as a witness of God's judgment on their enemy's sin. But when we get to Judges 19, we will see Israel cut up one of their own in a far worse way. We're not talking thumbs and big toes. We're talking limbs. And it will serve as a witness of God's judgment on Israel's sin. Again, it looks like we're getting this downward trajectory from things started out so well and end so poorly. That contrast can be seen again in the next vignette. Look at verses 11 to 15. There we get the story of Caleb giving his daughter in marriage to whoever can conquer Kiriath Sefer. Now that's a story that offends our modern ears. But if we put ourselves in this ancient cultural context, and actually try to see what's happening right here, this is Caleb seeking out a faithful husband for his daughter, Aksa, who is like himself. Remember, Caleb was one of the ones who all the way back, the first time they came to the promised land, he believed God. He believed in God's promise to conquer the land. And here he's seeking out a husband who's the same. Someone who believes that God will do what he says he will do. Someone who will put his faith into action and lead others to do the same. He's looking for a man who trusts God and leads others to trust God. And he finds that man in Othiniel. Othiniel is actually going to be our first judge that we'll encounter later on. And he's going to be the best judge that we get. From all indications in this text, it seems like Aksa is pleased with the, the match. She goes after a wedding blessing. Othiniel, ask my father to give us a, a field. I mean, this is why God brought us here, to give us this land. We want to participate in the blessing of the Lord. And he gives it. But it's of the Negev, a desert area. Not, not going to be too useful without some sources of irrigation. And so Aksa herself goes to her father and asks 
for spring water. And how does Caleb respond? With a double portion, double blessing. Take the upper and the lower springs. Overarchingly, what we're getting is a positive picture of God's blessing flowing freely between men and women through provision, through protection. And this contrasts horrifyingly with the end. Oh, once again, when we get to Judges 19, we will see men treat women not with blessing, but with brutality. Not, not providing uh, provision or protection, but we will see gang rape, death, and dismemberment. Like I told you we're descending into the darkness. All these contrasts between the introduction and conclusion, when we, when we step back and look at them, do we not begin to see a trajectory emerging? A trajectory that serves as a warning. In Judges 1, the introduction, things do seem to be going well, but be warned, we're being told. We are on a downward trajectory from here on out. That's confirmed for us by the final contrast we see in these little vignettes. Look at verses 16 to 20. We get two little things right here. In verse 16, we see God's people being faithful to their word. God's people being faithful to their word. We get Moses' in-laws coming up and settling in the promised land. This is in fulfillment of a promise that Moses made all the way back in Numbers chapter 10. He promised his in-laws a place among God's people in the promised land. And here the people are being faithful to keep that promise. And they're not the only ones keeping their promises. God is too. In verse 20, we see the faithfulness of God as he fulfills his promises. Look at verse 20. We are told there specifically that Caleb drove out the sons of Anak. Now, do you remember me telling you, all the way back when we went over the backstory here, do you remember me telling you that the first time that the people came and spied out the promised land, they shrunk back, they freaked out, they, they didn't trust God to empower them and one of the main reasons was because in the land they saw the giant Anakim, the sons of Anak. They were freaked out of their minds. It is, it is highly likely that the Israelites even believed the Anakim to be like semi-divine beings. Like think like demigod, Hercules type stuff. Some scholars actually think the Anakim were semi-supernatural beings. I've read those arguments. I personally am not convinced by them, but it's an option and it's a fun conversation that we can have over coffee. But the primary point is Caleb trusted God's promise that these people, no matter how big or powerful, could be defeated. And that's what we see right here. God fulfilling a 40-year-old promise that Caleb had trusted all his life. What we're seeing right here contrasts one more time with the conclusion of the book of Judges. Here we have God's people being faithful to their promises. Here we have God fulfilling his promises. But when we conclude, we will conclude with a picture of the people's unfaithfulness. And we will conclude with God's unfulfilled promises hanging in the air. We see this in the very last verse of the book. 
Very last verse of Judges says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. As God had promised to one day give them, this unfulfilled promise just hanging in the air. And we get a picture of the people's unfaithfulness. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Contrast that last verse of Judges with the first verse of Judges. In Judges 1, did we not see God's people come to him as king, seeking to do what was right in his eyes? Do you see the downward trajectory? Shades, it might, as we go through Judges 1, it might look like things are going well. But when we step back and see the trajectory, there emerges a warning. Judges is a warning of how God's people spiral downward into darkness. That's, that's my important sentence for you right there. Judges is a warning of how God's people spiral downward into darkness. That's what we're going to see over and over and over again. It's what we've already seen just by contrasting the introduction with the conclusion. But we don't just see it there. We see it by the entire structure of everything between the introduction and the conclusion. Between the introduction and the conclusion that I've been talking about all morning, we are going to see 12 judges. We're going to get six minor judges and six major judges. That just has to do with how much is written about them. The six minor judges, we really don't know much about aside from their names. They just kind of get an honorable mention. The focus is on the six major judges. And through those six major judges, we are going to get six cycles that are going to spiral us downward, deeper and deeper into darkness. See the structure of the whole book. Introduction, Six cycles, conclusion. Many scholars note how that structure parallels the structure of the creation account in Genesis chapter one. Except for the fact Judges moves in the opposite direction. Genesis one moves from chaos to order. Judges moves from order to chaos. Genesis one from darkness to light. Judges from light to to darkness. Genesis 1 tells this beautiful story of God creating and making all things, and it ends with God bringing all of creation and his people into a Sabbath rest where he's enthroned as the king over all. Judges spirals downward and ends with the people of God having no rest in the land, and there was no king in Israel. It's, Judges is an uncreation narrative. It is the uncreation or the decreation of the people of God. They were supposed to go in and drive out the Canaanites, become a light to the nations. Instead, they become just like the Canaanites and they descend into darkness as a nation, and not just the people, the judges, their leaders. We'll talk more about them in the coming weeks, obviously. But they go on this downward spiral too. As a kid, I don't, I don't know if you, if you grew up in church, you probably heard some of the highlights from judges, probably cleaned up a little bit, polished here and there. 
As a kid, I thought the judges were like heroes. I had a Samson action figure. That's a true story, and I am not proud. And the messed up part of it is that he came with a Delilah action figure. Right? I will provide my parents' address. You may all write them. I love them. They're great. Love you, Mom and Dad. Mom listens every week. I thought these judges were heroes. And here's the deal. We will see the judges do some good things. It's not like they're just bad guys. We'll see them do some good things. We'll see the Lord work through them. But the deeper we get into the book, the deeper their own darkness will become. Judges is like the Bible's uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Like, Shades, do you see through contrasting the introduction and conclusion, through the overarching structure of the book, do you see that Judges is a warning? A warning of how God's people spiral downward into darkness. We see that specifically, clearly, right here at the conclusion of our passage in Judges 1. Look at verse 19. I skipped it. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What happened? God not strong enough for chariots? God's like, ooh, iron! Jeez! Things were going so well. And Judah, who'd been trusting in the Lord as their strength, was experiencing success. But here they experience a failure in their faith. God wasn't scared of the chariots. Judah was. Judah saw those chariots, and it's, it's, it's like their hope was extinguished. We're not stronger than that. We don't have superior technology to, to that. We can't beat them. And, and around their faith, the darkness of doubt began to close in. This is how, Shades. This is how God's people spiral downward into darkness. This whole chapter has looked great. And here's something seemingly so small. This is how. When God's people see darkness seemingly growing strong around them and it starts freaking them out, they got freaking iron chariots. And God's people take their eyes off the light of God's strength, off the light that the darkness cannot overcome. When they do that, they freak out and they try to fight in their own strength and they fail time and time and time again. This is where the descent begins, where the failure of faith. Judges is warning us, this is how God's people spiral downward into darkness. Darkness makes them quit trusting him. Take their eyes off him. It's almost like, it's almost like we need a light that can keep our eyes fixed on him 
when all other lights go out. We need a light that we know the darkness cannot overcome so that our faith remains fixed and we don't freak out. As the distinguishing mark of the people of God, we are a people who do not freak. We don't panic. No matter how powerful the darkness may seem. Where can we find such a light? So bright, it stays lit, burning, in full brightness, even when all other lights go out. Where can we find such a light? Right here, shades, in Judges. In Judges. This is the second thing. I told you we'd breeze through this. This is the second thing we consistently see throughout our journey through, we're gonna consistently see throughout our journey in Judges. Yes, we're gonna see that Judges is a warning of how God's people spiral downward into darkness. But secondly, number two, Judges is also a witness. Judges is a witness of how God's promise shines forth in unconquerable light. It's, it's a warning of how God's people spiral downward into darkness, but it's also a witness of how God's promise shines forth in unconquerable light. What promises I'm talking about? I'm talking about the gospel promise of his grace, that he will save, sustain, and satisfy his people forever. Do you see, have, have you seen Judges 1 bearing witness to that unconquerable light? Like, do you see it shining forth from these pages? It is. It's shining forth in the form of God's faithfulness. Think about it with me. Even if, even if, so I've, I've told you that I think everything in chapter one is painting a picture that things are going well. Even if you interpret all of chapter one negatively, like, like it's still shining forth the bright light of God's faithfulness. As a matter of fact, the dimmer you try to make the picture, the brighter the light of his faithfulness shines. If, if you say, walk back through the chapter, if you say the alliance between Judah and Simeon should never have happened, that's Judah lacking faith, it just makes God's gracious faithfulness to give them victory that much brighter. If you say the way Israel treats Adonai, Bezek in verses four to six is, is darkness and it's them already descending into the darkness and becoming just like the Canaanites, they're using the Canaanites' own torture practices back against them, that just makes God's gracious faithfulness to give them victory anyway that much brighter. The same thing is true if you interpret the story of Aksa negatively. If you interpret all of chapter one that way, Israel's descent into darkness is only going to reveal more and more the brightness of the light of God's grace. Even when God lets his people be defeated in verse 19. He's gonna do this again and again throughout the book. Even when God lets his people be defeated, like by iron chariots, his grace will be on display and that he sustains them in defeat. He will not let them ultimately be entirely eliminated because he's still got promises to keep to them. Shades, get ready to see the brightness of the light of God's grace. Because yes, Judges is the darkest book in the Bible, but it is precisely when, it is precisely when all other lights go out that we see there remains one light the darkness cannot overcome. You can't see that any other way. It's precisely when all other lights go out that you see there's one light 
The darkness cannot overcome, and it's the light of God's gospel grace. Judges may end with no king in Israel, but God's grace promises that that promise will not remain unfulfilled. He will send an ultimate promised king, our savior, our ultimate judge, our ultimate leader. And John chapter one and verse five says that that ultimate leader, Jesus, is a light, and he is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot conquer it. Jesus is our light when all other lights go out and judges bears witness to him. Shades, this is how. This is how judges shows the light we have when all other lights go out. It does it by taking us into the darkness, into the place where everything else we would trust in, hope in, believe in is extinguished, where all other lights are diminished so that we may see there is just one that the darkness cannot overcome. Judges is a witness of how God's promise shines forth in unconquerable light. And Shades, let me end this way. We are here going through judges because this is what we need to see. We need to see that no matter how dark anything gets in our world, we have a light, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the darkness cannot overcome it. We need to see this, Shades, because we are living in a moment when Christians, I think specifically in our culture in the West, we're living in a moment when Christians in our culture think that things are the darkest they've ever been. I hear people say that all the time. Things have never been this bad. I'm like, do you read? Like your Bible? I mean, read Judges. I ain't seen any thumbs and big toes being lost recently. And that's the tame part. Christians in our culture think that things are the worst that they've ever been, and as a result, they are freaking out. They look around and they see nothing but iron chariots. And their faith in God fails. And so what do they do? They think, well, I'm going to get some iron chariots of my own. I've got to fight the battles and the darkness that I see with the same weapons that the world uses. Money, influence, political power, anger, hate, which just ends up making the people of God blend in with the rest of the darkness of the world makes Christians look like Canaanites. Judges warns us, this is how it begins. This is how the downward spiral of any of God's people into darkness begins. But shades, we need judges so that we will know we are a people who do not freak out. We need judges because it shows us our time is not the darkest it has ever been. Anyone you ever hear say things are the darkest they've ever been, tell them, judges says, hold my beer. Let me show you darkness. And judges reveals that even in the depths of true darkness, we have a light that cannot be conquered when all other lights go out, when it looks like every source of hope and strength has been extinguished, when it looks like most of God's people have just become exactly like the Canaanites, exactly like the world, the light of the gospel still does not go out. 
Shades, I'm watching a lot of believers, especially young believers who are disillusioned with older believers who have blended in with the culture and look just like Canaanites. And I'm watching these young believers, as a result of that, be disillusioned and deconstruct their faith and walk away from Jesus. I feel the pull of that. If you feel the pull of that, I'd plead with you, don't deconstruct your faith and walk away from Jesus because the church looks more like Canaanites than like Christ. Keep your eyes on him. His light doesn't go out. Any given church's might. Jesus said that. Revelation, read those letters to those churches. Man, he's threatening to remove some lampstands. Church's light can go out, but the light of Christ does not. When, when you experience pastors, leaders, authors, who you love and who've influenced you and who you've seen do much good, and when you see them fail or be revealed to actually be filled with darkness, like many of the judges we're going to see in this book, mixed bag, do some good things, we see some of them fall. When that happens, judges is here so that we don't despair amidst the dark. This book shows us there is an ultimate judge, leader, pastor, shepherd named Jesus, who even when another leader, pastor, judge's light goes out, his does not. His light shines forth bright and unconquerable light. When, when you have experienced personal failure, when you failed, faltered in your faith, when you feel the darkness in yourself, come to Judges to see it witness to the fact that no darkness, not even darkness in you, can extinguish God's grace towards you. We are going to see God be gracious towards people that you, I promise, cannot even begin to compete with. The light of God's gospel grace in Jesus shines forth brightly here. Shades, this is why we need judges right now. Because we need Jesus. So we won't be a people who freak out, but be a people of faith. A people who bear witness to this dark world that we have a light. Even when all other lights go out.